Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 426. This is part one of a two-part show with Rob Dickinson. You have to be true to yourself. I mean, how many, how many times have we heard other people say that? That's where fulfillment comes from, I think. And if you have an idea and you keep thinking about it, be fearless, do it. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. I'll never worry again about having a dead battery with my NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in my glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that'll jumpstart a dead battery in my car, boat, truck, or RV. The Genius Boost features built-in spark-proof technology and reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart any of my vehicles. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are built from solid copper for maximum conductivity. There's a built-in ultrabite dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS and emergency strobe. I use my Genius Boost Jump Starter to charge my phone, tablet, and laptop while I'm on the road or if the power goes out in my home. The unit itself is easily rechargeable in my vehicle. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, the battery car source since 1914. I've got one in each of my vehicles. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Rob Dickinson. Rob, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I sure am, Mark. I sure am. Let's go. All right. Rob Dickinson is the owner of Singer Vehicle Design in Southern California. At Singer, Rob and his talented team build bespoke vehicles starting with older Porsches and reimagining them by completely customizing the cars to an unbelievable detail. The cars are literally restored, reimagined, and reborn. The level of thought, design, engineering, and detail that go into each of these cars is beyond most imaginations and is defined by a mantra that he sprayed on the wall of his shop that reads, everything is important. In his former career, Rob was a musician and a singer, playing in the English alternative rock band Catherine Wheel, and Rob recently created a limited edition book about his builds titled One More Than Ten, Singer and the Porsche 911, published by Stance and Speed. Rob, I've told our listeners just a tiny bit about you. Would you take a brief moment and share a little bit more before we get into the questions here about your business, your interests, and of course, your passion for automobiles? Sure. Yeah, I, I grew up in England, Mark, born in the mid-60s, um, became unusually uh, uh, infatuated by cars at an early age. My dad was a car man, and I think I inherited that. And most importantly, I became very fascinated by the Porsche 911 uh, in, uh, at the age of five in 1970 when my dad pointed one out to me while we were on vacation in southern France. Very cool. That, in many ways, started a, uh, a fascination with this car that has obviously led to where we're at at the moment and probably the reason we're talking to each other. But when I left school, I studied art at, uh, at the uh, local art college where I um, spent a year uh, learning all sorts of elements of uh, the artistic oeuvre, um, I, from, from um, uh, drawing nudes to graphics to photography to 
uh, generally dipping my toe in all aspects of a potential career in the arts. Uh-huh. And for me, it was pretty obvious why I was there because I, it was a stepping stone for me to be accepted into quite an important university in uh, in England called uh, the Coventry University. Um, it was actually called the Coventry Lanchester Polytechnic back oh, in the yeah. 80s when I was there, yeah. uh, which has a celebrated automotive design course, which I wanted to get onto. Mm-hmm. At this point, music and cars were vying for um, uh, importance in my life, but uh, I knew that I probably needed to get a job at some point, and I knew that if I wanted to do anything in, in a normal realm of a, of a career, um, I wanted to be a car designer. So luckily, I got accepted at that college in 1984, I think it was. Nice. Um, uh, study. It was a four-year course, and I studied for two years, and at the end of two years, I was uh, pretty adamant that I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to pursue rock and roll. <laughs> um, to, to, uh, to my parents' chagrin, I should add, but also I should add that my um, my parents are enormously supportive and suggested to me that maybe I should take a year off from the course mm-hmm. and uh, and try and get a, a a job in car design to satisfy myself that it was something I didn't want to do, and uh, I thought that was quite a sensible idea. So I did that, and the obvious place for me, the door for me to knock on, was a company called Lotus in uh, in the UK. Oh yeah, sure your listeners know all about Lotus. Oh, Lotus is based uh, near the city that I was born in, Norwich. Mm-hmm. Um, the town of Heppel is where Lotus are based, and they were literally about 45 minutes drive from my parents' house. Nice. So I contacted Peter Stevens, who was um, celebrated uh, head of design at uh, Lotus at the time. Peter was super cool and invited me down to Lotus, and I showed him my portfolio, and he, he said, sure, I'll give you a job. How no. oh, cool is that? <laughs> so... Uh, so, so with, with very little fanfare, I was suddenly working in the design studio, which was, which was an honour indeed. Working with you know with Peter Stevens, which, again, I'm sure your your listeners know that Peter went on to to design the uh, McLaren F1. McLaren F1, yes. Well, with Gordon Murray, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, apparently, Gordon gets very upset if, uh, if if the design of the McLaren F1 is attributed to Peter. But well, uh, and rightfully so. <laughs> well, yes, it was, a, it was a joint effort, and I think Peter did a an amazing job on that car, but I digress. So yeah, so I spent, I, I had a few months at Lotus working in the studio with Peter. I was also shoulder to shoulder with Julian Thompson, who was a spectacularly talented guy um, who was at Lotus at the time. And of course, Simon Cox, who was also spectacularly talented. Oh yeah. Uh, two guys that have gone on subsequently to do amazing things at Jaguar and at uh, Cadillac and GM. Those guys are rock stars as far as I'm concerned in, 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 the, in the automotive world. Sure. And I, of course, had, had the amazing chance to work next to them and learn from them. But it, it did become clearer and clearer that, that sitting at a, at a design desk uh, sketching cars all day, although fantastic, was not as alluring to me as trying to pursue my itch to, to become a proper musician sure well i guess i was i was a proper musician at oh that yeah point, I, I, I certainly wasn't making a living at it so i uh i thanked peter and uh, made my excuses and left so this was in 1988 and by 1990 my band the catherine wheel had got a major label recording contract and we were on our way to uh, 10 years of of rocking and rolling um around the world which was which was a lot of fun and i um, would think so <laughs> i do think that it's it's quite interesting i do think my love of cars actually increased 
due to that. I think if I'd have gone into the industry, so to speak, at, at that age, it may have squeezed the love of and passion for for cars out of me. Mm-hmm. Of course, my, the, you know, the, the music allowed me to uh, plenty of, plenty of time to dream and to uh, have ambitions to uh, you know to buy the cars that I always wanted. Well, and the music certainly um, allowed me to scratch my itch and, and purchase my first Porsche 911, which I did in the mid-1990s. And that was the beginning, the very, very early beginnings of uh, what we're probably here to talk about, uh, Mark, which is Singer. So the 1990s were all about rock and roll, but also scratching my 911 itch. And then uh, and then we're into the 2000s, where which was a, a decade of... Of, uh, of change for me. The Catherine Will split up in 2000 after 10 years of making music together. And I moved to, the, to, to New York with my manager um, to pursue a, uh, a solo career, I think as the cliche goes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> which, uh-huh. uh, which was slow in getting off the ground, mainly because I, um, I was enjoying living in New York a little bit too much and really wasn't getting much work done. Ah, okay. Subsequently, I, um, I moved to Los Angeles in 2003 to make uh, a solo record and use the excuse of being in Los Angeles to uh, as the opportunity to build my perfect 911 of my own. And, and uh, I, uh, I sold the cars I had in the UK and put a lot of effort and a lot of time and quite a lot of money into building my own ultimate Porsche 911, which I did in 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, 2002, I purchased the car. Okay, and um, and that car uh, became my daily driver in Hollywood. Um, I moved hook, line, and sinker to to LA in 2003, and I've lived here subsequently ever since. But that car became my daily driver as, um, in Hollywood, and um, I uh, I took it to the various racetracks uh, that are Southern California. Enjoyed that car thoroughly, and that car became quite notorious in in, in a few magazines and some of the forums on the fledgling internet as it was then and um that car was the genesis of of singer um that car uh, was the reason and the impetus and the uh the germ of the idea for attempting to provide the opportunity for other people to come to me so we could collaboratively build their vision of their ultimate 911 and that that's how that happened well it, it's an incredible story and one like some things i didn't know about you was your design background which is really really cool and now it starts to all make sense here but we're going to learn a lot more about this as we move through but first i always like to start by asking my guests for some kind of ins- inspirational quote or a mantra and i i mentioned a great mantra that I see spray painted on the wall in your shop, and maybe that's the right one you're going to share with us. But could you tell us a little bit about an inspirational thought or process that that is important to you there at Singer? Um, well, the, the other thing is important thing is was a moment of utter frustration four or five years ago. <laughs> when everyone had gone home, and I was walking through our shop, looking at the day's work and sticking post-it notes on on areas of the car. And I started to say, yeah, this is important, and stick, fix this, this is important. And, I, and when I looked around, there were about 10 stickers, 10 post-it stickers all over the car. And I just looked down and thought, Jesus, everything is important. But I actually wrote, wrote it down on a table. And then I looked at it, I thought, well, this is worthy of, of a bigger canvas. And, and, and I picked up a spray can and, and sprayed <laughs> it on one of our biggest walls. So we'd all see it each time when we walked in, yeah. in, in the morning and understand that 
that it, that it is a vital part of getting something right, and it's something I learned making music, and it's one of those odd parallels that I've seen crop up over the last five or six years while we've been doing this, but are comparable to, to making music and the creativity and the process that goes into making music. Yeah, Everything touches everything else, and the standard of one thing can make the standard of another thing look very poor. Sure. And of course, everything uh, on, on a car, everything relates to everything else. And, and um, so at, at that time, that mantra meant a lot to me in terms of the execution and the build quality of what we were doing. And they, these were very early cars that we were literally taking months and months and months and months to build. Yeah. Um, and we were learning. And, uh, and as, as I've always said, no one's written the book on how to do what we're trying to do. So we were, we were uh, and we still are to a degree, making up as we go along. But that mantra has become increasingly important as the company has grown. And, and one of the things that's become paramount and very obvious to me that our company is as much about people now as it is about cars. And, and, and when I say people, it's both the people who work at Singer uh, and that sort of friendship and family and friendship that we, I, I hope we have at the company yeah. and also the relationship we have with our clients at this it never occurred to me when we started, but as as we've had some success and we've we've restored and modified more and more of our clients' cars, there has been this very clear sense that the the future of our company is based upon the relationships that we engender with our clients, and that's just not about building them, uh, restoring and, and modifying their car to a spectacular standard, which of course we aspire to do. That's looking after that individual like a family member and perhaps more importantly looking after their car forever literally forever yeah um yeah. so when so when when their car leaves our shop uh that's when our job really begins in terms of uh communication and monitoring that car's whereabouts its life its failures its successes its its maintenance and everything else and of course this is the back end of our work which but it's literally exponential because it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as we as we build and restore more cars from all of our clients. It's something we never really realized. So it's it's become a, a our company to 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 have a a whole department who just looks after our clients um, and uh, treats them with the respect that they're due. And of course, this uh, you know this sense that everything is important has become more of a uh, has become a weightier uh, uh, mantra, if you like, as uh, as we've as we've uh, been more successful, and, and it's clear that uh, it touches more than simply the execution of the car. Yep. So so there's there's that. Um, but there, there is a, there is another phrase that has st- um, stayed with me in my creative years, Mark. That that has been pivotal in everything that I do. Mm-hmm. It came from a um, a brilliant English. Uh, motoring journalist called Russell Bulgin, B-U-L-G-I-N, mm-hmm. who tragically died early from cancer, but he was a celebrated British motoring uh, writer and journalist from of the uh, of the 90s and early 2000s. He once wrote a quote about trying to define what cool is, C-O-O-L. <laughs> uh-huh. And of course, it's a word that we all bandy about rather loosely sometimes and uh you know that's cool that's cool well that's really cool that you know whatever whatever the hell it is and i found this this guy's quote to be so on the money on the button as to what cool is that i've always remembered it and the quote was cool 
is something or someone that expends no energy in defining itself. <laughs> I love it. I've always loved that. I'm not saying cool is good, but it's a, it's a word that's become so overused and, and, and such a natural part of our vernacular that I love the idea of investigating it as a, as a notion and that sense that, you know, that sense that something is happy in its own skin without the need to define itself. Yep. You can use it as a, uh, as a mantra for, for writing a song. You can use it as a mantra for dressing yourself. You can use it as a mantra for designing something. It's impeccable. And what I always loved was its synchronicity with the great Dr. Porsche's view that uh, beauty comes from function. Mm, and, yes. uh, and the beauty wasn't about embellishment and sticking fancy bits on top of a surface. It was about getting that surface right for the function that that surface needed to perform, and beauty would come naturally from that. And that, for me, is... And, of course, you know, Dr. Porsche wasn't talking about the realms of coolness. He was talking about the realms of the deep, deep significance of good design and, and, what, and, and what good design is and what effortless design is and what timeless, classless, functional design truly is. And, and that's something that, um, again... Amazingly, you can pin, I mean, I've sat down and written hundreds of songs in my life, and when you sit down with a guitar and with a Olivia, <laughs> and you have to start somewhere, and starting point, uh, or the, you know, the start of the song is something that is just of you. Yes. Um, and uh, design should be of you as well. And I think that phrase has stuck with me for, for many years in terms of uh, keeping me honest in terms of uh, creative endeavors. I think so. Brilliant. You know, you talked about when you were a little boy, I think five years old, you said your dad pointed out a Porsche. And I believe if I read right, when I did a little research on you, it was a Targa coming down the roadway on a family trip. But is there a moment in time in your life that instigated your passion for cars? Is there a pivotal moment, as you can remember it, when you really knew that you were a car guy? It was probably that moment. It's actually well documented in uh, in our book, Mark. <laughs> I sound like I'm pushing up book. I suppose, I suppose I am pushing it. Well, we should yeah. be pushing it. It's an awesome book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It was a pivotal moment for me. Up until that point, I was, you know, cars had certainly, um, I mean, cars, you know, I was fascinated by, with cars, but there was a moment when this odd-looking, bug-eyed Porsche came up behind, and we were in a VW bug, by the way, synchronicity going on there as well. And, I, you know, it was, a, it was August 1970. And what's interesting about this is that that, was the very day in August 1970, we were on a southern French auto route, I think it was probably mid, mid-August. At that moment, the Le Mans movie was being shot by Steve McQueen Oh wow! in Le Mans. And I subsequently put all this together because um, Chad McQueen has subsequently got become a, a good friend. And, and we, we were hanging out at the brilliant, the brilliant, brilliant Steve McQueen um, and Le Mans uh, movie documentary premiere a few weeks ago yeah i just watched that as, yeah as i was watching this brilliant documentary it occurred to me that everything that i was watching was going on exactly while i was in france for the first time in 1970 oh wow and we would have literally driven past le mans to get down to the south of france wow isn't that cool <laughs> chad was there he's chad's a little bit older than me chad would have been eight because um, he was hanging out with his dad shooting the movie that summer Yep. And I was down in, in, you know, probably 200, 300 miles south 
being indoctrinated for the first time in the in the Porsche 911 myself. Wow. So we had a good chat about that. Those were pivotal years for Chad and his relationship with his dad, and obviously a very memorable time for him, and obviously it was a very memorable time for me for the very reason that my dad, bless him, introduced me to this 911, and yeah. uh, and it was fascination from the word go. And, <laughs> and what really gripped me, Mark, was the odd juxtaposition of the front of the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, as everyone knows, you know, the front of an old 911 has this big, happy, smiling face, yep. these big circular uh, headlights that obviously act as eyes and this smiling bumper. And then as this thing went by, the, the back of the car has this very, very different visage, far angrier, cross-eyed, you know, buckled wheels, lots of negative camber on the back wheels, and the thing just looked angry as hell. And and, and I and I remember being absolutely uh, smitten by this odd juxtaposition of a friendly front and an angry rear. And um, <laughs> very cool. And I I, I really was uh, captured by it, and and, uh, and and it's never left me since. This fascination with this crazy little German car. Yeah, it's that, very that, clear. That has won over so many millions of us in, in the world who love cars. Yeah. And getting to grips as to exactly why it has done that. And, and, and I think it goes a lot to the fact of understatement, quiet, functional design, Teutonic, conservative design, mm-hmm. very Germanic. And uh, that incremental development, obviously, that the Porsche 911 went through from, from, the, from the mid-60s all the way to the present day. Is a, it's become like a family member to us, I think, and it's become something we respect and we trust and, uh, and we love on a level that is almost uh, profound and yes. beyond the normal love of normal cars. It's, yeah. um, it's something I, find, I still find absolutely fascinating. Well, it's really, really cool how things came together and ended up back where they did. I watched the same documentary not too long ago. Chad's going to be a guest of mine very soon here on Cars Yeah. So we'll be talking about that documentary in that time, and I'm sure your name will come up. What I would really love to do now is what I like to say, crawl under the hood and get our hands a little dirty and ask you to talk about a huge challenge or even a great failure that you've faced along the way in your career. But the most important part of this has to do with how did you overcome that situation? And even more important, what did it teach you? What did you learn from it? Goodness, I can say uh, categorically that the first three years of, of Sigal Design's life as a company were torturous mm-hmm. um, and were incredible, incredibly challenging. And, and uh, you know, putting the uh, the conceptual idea of an ultimate 911 out there for the world to assess and evaluate, which is what we did in 2009, mm-hmm. and then have to. Uh, then be rather surprised at the reaction to it, the positive reaction to it, and then then be tasked with living up to the hype, if you like, or living up to the expectations of what such a car would be, were probably, probably was the, literally the biggest challenge of my life. Doing the work necessary mm-hmm. to build cars that were, weren't just great to look at, but were beautifully executed and went down the road properly has been an enormous challenge. And again, maybe I make these issues for myself. I mean, I I don't like to fail at things that I've set myself a challenge to do, especially when I've done it so so publicly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, there was a sense sense that we put our idea out there for the world to see at at, uh, the 2009 Monterey um, Historic uh, Week. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and sure enough, you know, the, the reaction was was very positive, and and that's when our problem started. In a way, <laughs> yes, we, we had the bar was set. Yeah, we had to make sense of this monster we'd created, and and there was never a sense that it would, it would ever be anything less than spectacular in my mind, anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, I should have known better because that's how I, you know, that's the kind of uh, mentality that I went into making music. And that's the mentality we then had to jump into to make sense of this crazy idea that we've come up with. And uh, it wasn't, it wasn't easy and it wasn't <laughs> yes. particularly pleasant. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've, I've read a lot about it and I know the book will probably cover a lot about it. And we could probably talk in an entire show about the challenges with building a car and all that. I've talked to many people who worked with you that told me the standards that you set are so high for yourself and the people around you and the product that that adds to it. But definitely you've succeeded. Uh, You've done it. I've seen your cars. I've had the pleasure of riding in one of your cars. I'll tell you, you guys hit the mark. Rob, I'm having so much fun talking with you today. I don't want to edit any of this out. So I'm going to turn this show into two shows here on Cars Yeah. So listeners, make sure you tune in tomorrow for the second half of my talk with Rob Dickinson from Singer Vehicle Design here on Cars Yeah. But before we go, here's a word from our Cars Yeah sponsor. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people, but what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!